COVID-19 has hit the Hanford site in southeastern Washington state, where plutonium was manufactured for the first atomic bombs and long after. It's known as the most toxic site in the Western Hemisphere, and you'd think that the powers that be that watch over it would be closely monitoring its more than 11,000 workers, but they're not exactly being as thorough as they might. And you might think that, well, this is a new panic-driven response to life-threatening problems at Hanford, but then you hear a genuine expert on the operating style at that facility tell you. That's what Hanford has always done, is if it doesn't want to find out the bad news, you don't even look for the bad news, right? You don't send an inspector out. You don't measure. Because if you measure it, you find something, you have to report it, right? And if you report it, eventually, or others, will find out what's going on. So it's best just not to even look. Well... With Hanford being a major international radioactive hotspot and danger zone, even without COVID-19, and now with it, you see yet another angle on that seat, that uncomfortable seat, that awful seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we talk with Tom Carpenter of Hanford Challenge, a watchdog group that keeps tabs on problems at the 586-square-mile radiologically toxic site in southeastern Washington state. We will also have our weekly international COVID-19 nuclear update and more honest nuclear information than Stephen Colbert has ever included in his monologue. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, May 12, 2020, And here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. First, two big stories here in the United States. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission has given a thumbs up to the West Texas Nuclear Waste Plan. In a 500-page draft report released on Monday, May 4, the staff of the NRC said that the full commission should approve an initial 40-year license for the company, Interim Storage Partners, to bring in about 5,000 metric tons of nuclear waste to West Texas. If granted, the license could, and probably would, later be expanded to allow up to 40,000 metric tons. Karen Haddon of the environmental NGO Seed Coalition said, The NRC does not seem to be taking health and safety and security concerns seriously. They're just trying to ram this project through, and it's putting us at risk. There could be accidents. There could be leaks. 
there could be hijacking of radioactive material. Seed Coalition and other environmental groups will be fighting this latest move. And breaking news today, May 12, the Blue Ridge Environmental Defense League has announced that part of the Vogel nuclear power plant under construction in Georgia is sinking. Arnie Gunderson, an independent nuclear power plant engineer who provided analysis of the structural problems at Vogel's Unit 3, said, Vogel has finally admitted that the sheer weight of the nuclear island building is causing it to sink into the red Georgia clay. It is figuratively and literally sinking under its own weight, and islands are not supposed to sink. A legal action was filed on Monday, May 11, by Breedle, calling on regulators to revoke the plant's license for false statements made by its owners, Southern Nuclear Operating Company. Here's our weekly COVID nuclear update. No further reports from Millstone Nuclear Power in Waterford, Connecticut, where 10 security guards tested positive for coronavirus. We knew that last week, not a single word since then. However, we do have an inside contact at Fermi Nuclear Power Plant, which is in the middle of a refueling outage. Whole site testing for coronavirus was held last Saturday and Sunday, and rumor has it that over 150 positives were recorded. Fermi's refueling outage was originally scheduled for March 21st to May 9th, 49 days, but now there is no end in sight as the work has been stopped. Predictions are that COVID threatens the industry and local communities that host nuclear reactors and that costs will become astronomical. At Hanford in southeast Washington state, two cases of COVID have been acknowledged, but workers report that there are at least 50 cases they know about. We'll have more details on that in today's interview. As to nuclear industry COVID-based trickery, the head of the National Nuclear Security Administration, or NNSA, has rejected a request by New Mexico Senators Tom Udall and Martin Heinrich to extend the public comment period on expanded plutonium pit bomb core production because of the pandemic. Even in normal times, NNSA and its parent Department of Energy routinely ask other government agencies for major time extensions when it comes to cleanup and independent oversight. The two senators requested a 45-day comment period extension on behalf of more than 120 organizations and individuals. But Lisa Gordon Haggerty, head of the NNSA, basically said, Nyeh claiming that expansion of plutonium pit production at Los Alamos National Laboratories is so vital to national security that the agency cannot wait another 45 days for public comment. Lab cleanup has stopped because of coronavirus, but expanded plutonium pit production must go on, they say. And the Trump administration is using the COVID pandemic to weaken environmental law for uranium mining to the detriment of the Grand Canyon, the Black Hills, and more, while the benefits will accrue to foreign mining companies. We're going to link to that article. Internationally, as electricity demands collapsed across the world because of lockdowns, renewables have taken a bigger slice of the market because many nations have decided to give new green technologies priority into the grid. In France, EDF, the world's biggest nuclear operator, expects outputs from its stations to fall by more than a fifth this year, and the utilities' shares are trading at close to a record low. 
In Sweden, two reactors at Vattenfall's Ringals plant are idle because prices are below the level where they break even. On Monday, Ukraine cut its annual nuclear power output forecast because of the virus lockdown. In China, the coronavirus caused reduced output of CGN power company's atomic plants after the New Year's holiday, and output fell 4.7% in the first quarter of the year. China also halted work on some reactors under construction in response to the pandemic. In the UK, staff numbers have been reduced by more than half at the Hinkley Point C nuclear plant, which is under construction. In the U.S., Duke Energy, which operates 11 nuclear reactors, is being impacted by a staff shortage and has adopted actions such as screening measures at reactors, as well as working remotely. The Baraka nuclear power plant in the United Arab Emirates has reduced the number of workers at the plant, is enforcing social distancing guidelines, establishing thermal monitoring at access points, and pausing work on units 2, 3, and 4. And cracking the whip on the nuclear wage slaves, the UK's Office for Nuclear Regulation, the Finnish Radiation and Nuclear Safety Authority, the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, and the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission have begun issuing exemptions for work hour limits and permitted reduced staffing along with enabling operators to offset work hours, revise shift patterns, and having essential staff live on site. We will link to several articles that deal with these issues in depth up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 464. Here's this week's featured interview. The Hanford site in southeastern Washington state is known as the most toxic site in the Western Hemisphere, filled with deadly radioactive waste going back to the 1940s waste that's held in decaying containers that have long outlived their safety margins. Now, Hanford must contend with a workforce dealing with a pandemic in addition to all of its other problems. That's why it's good to know that groups like Hanford Challenge are watching what's going on and doing what they can to hold the Department of Energy's feet to the fire to manage this nuclear nightmare. Tom Carpenter, currently serves as executive director of Hanford Challenge. He is an attorney and worked as the director of the nuclear oversight campaign for the Government Accountability Project from 1985 to 2007. Previously, he founded Cincinnati Alliance for Responsible Energy and served on the Cincinnati Mayor's Environmental Advisory Council. We spoke on Friday, May 8, 2020. Tom Carpenter. Thanks so much for joining us on Nuclear Hot Seat. Hey, great to be here. For those people who might not be familiar with Hanford, let's start with a little bit of history. What is the Hanford site? How was it started? When was it started? And how did it earn the name the most toxic place in America? Okay, well, Hanford started in World War II as part of the so-called Manhattan Project. And it was part of the effort to build the first nuclear weapons in the world. And it came out of Los Alamos and the think tank there called the Manhattan Project. And it was the, the muscle, whereas the Los Alamos was the brain. So its job was to produce the first sizable quantities of plutonium, which is the heart of a, a nuclear weapon. And that plutonium was used 
in the first nuclear bomb test in Trinity, New Mexico, and in the bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki, Japan, in World War II in 1945. And the U.S. government went on to use Hanford to make lots and lots of plutonium in order to continue the nuclear arms race. The way to make plutonium is to fission uranium in a reactor that creates a neutron flux. That neutron radiation interacts with other kinds of uranium, uranium-238, and eventually that decays to plutonium-239, which is the material that is at the heart of almost all of our nuclear weapons. It's considered a much better nuclear weapons explosive device than, than anything else. So Hanford went on to build nine nuclear reactors and operate what are called five reprocessing facilities in the middle of the Hanford site in order to separate out the plutonium from the hot radioactive mess. And the result of that was a huge, huge contaminated facility over 45 years of production. Um, Even though production ended in about 1987, officially in 1989, the site is still undergoing a massive and very expensive cleanup effort. And this site, by the way, is in the state of Washington. It's in the southeast part of the state in a remote area called the Tri-Cities, Richland, Pasco, and Kennewick. And since 1989, the U.S. government has spent well over $50 billion on the cleanup at the Hanford site. And yet, they haven't really scratched the surface. So latest uh, estimates are that the cleanup will cost as much as $660 billion and take many, many decades to accomplish this cleanup. And even then, that cleanup is really going to be leaving most of the waste buried right there on the banks of the Columbia River where Hanford is located. What are the dangers there and how dangerous are they? This is widely acknowledged to be the most contaminated and toxic facility in the United States and and really in the Western Hemisphere. It's got large inventories of nuclear waste, the worst kind of nuclear waste, which is reprocessing waste from the operation of those reactors. What makes that the worst? The uh, long-lived nature of the waste. Some of those radionuclides are dangerous for millions and millions of years, which sounds like an exaggeration, but iodine-129 has a half-life of 15 million years, and it takes 10 half-lives for it to be considered gone. It's not only that, but these are dangerous in microscopic quantities, and they tend to, these radionuclides tend to build up in the food chain and migrate into the water supply and into crops and and biological systems. So there's quite the Pandora's box that we opened when we started making nuclear materials like this for short-term gains for national security or commercial nuclear power. You know, these are really long-lived products and there's no real disposition path Uh, meaning there's really no cleanup to be had. Uh, The only thing that we can think of to do with it as a race is to isolate it deep underground. And few societies have actually managed to do that effectively yet. I think Hanford is 
the worst because of the pure volume of the materials. We're talking hundreds of millions of gallons of high-level waste, 56 million gallons stored in underground nuclear waste tanks that years ago should have been taken out of commission, but they still store that waste. That is a big problem. A third of those tanks have failed already. But it's not the the only thing out there. There are a lot of other little inventories. There's waste that has leaked into the soil. There's waste that was disposed of on purpose into the soil. There's buildings containing all kinds of radioactive inventories. It's just a mind-boggling headache. It's going to be very expensive and very tough to manage this waste into the future so that people don't get hurt either in the short or the long term. How many people, on average, work at the Hanford site and are involved with the various issues there? Uh, About 9,000 employees at the Hanford site. That figure goes up or down depending on the year and the funding cycles. The number of employees actually on the site working with contaminated materials is more around the neighborhood of four to 5,000. A lot of folks are management or engineers or you know, white-collar workers working downtown, figuring out the budgets and you know, the work plans and that kind of thing. Before COVID-19 hit, for the sake of argument, let's just say as of the first of the year, January 2020, what was the status of the cleanup? What was being worked on and what was being planned? It's an interesting question because it changed pretty quickly. In about February, well, we'll say in January, just to start, the plan was to start removing nuclear waste from some of the tanks and to fire up what's called the vitrification facility at least for low-activity waste. And explain what the vitrification process is. That is uh, a plant that is supposed to mix waste into glass logs, basically, big glass formulations. And the waste would go into the, uh, the glass, into these big canisters. They would cool. And then uh, those canisters containing some of the worst of that waste would be buried in a deep geological repository, or if they have less radionuclide content, be buried on the Hanford site. So that's the plan that they've got. And roughly the goal is to get most of that waste, 90% of the waste of the radionuclides in that waste, in the high-level waste stream, so that you have less to worry about to bury in a deep geological repository. We don't have one of those yet. Right. We have the fiction that is Yucca Mountain, but that's another story. That's a whole other story. And so because of that, and because there have been real serious technical managerial problems with the waste treatment facility that they're building out there, you know, with all kinds of design and safety issues and whistleblowers, the government uh, has kind of put a lot of that on the back burner. And they're just saying, okay, we're going to do the easy waste 
uh, which is liquid waste in double shell tanks. We're going to filter that through cesium ion columns, which you know, remove the cesium, which is high-level waste. It's very high gamma-producing material, and send the treated lower-level waste then for vitrification at what's called the low-activity waste vitrification part of the facility. And they're hoping to do that in 2022. What that does is leaves about 10 million curies of cesium in columns stored outdoors for decades with no clear disposition path. We call that orphan waste. It's like, okay, but it's good that it's out of the tanks, but now it's sitting outside, subject to the elements. And, you know, there's earthquakes, there's volcanoes, there's things that could go wrong, there's people who have bad intent. So this is a lot of radioactivity. 10 million curies of cesium is unlike, I mean, it's just mind-boggling how much radioactivity that is. We measure permissible levels of cesium-137. For instance, in a liter of water, in about seven trillionths of a curie. And you're talking 10 million curies stored in these cesium ion columns with, with no real plan on what to do with it. So there's some things to be worried about here with, the, with this plan. But the more worrisome thing for us, and, and I've been on your show before talking about this, is that the current government administration has deemed the cleanup to be too complicated and too expensive. That figure of $660 billion assumes that the plan would go forward to remove waste from the tanks and treat it and put stuff into classified form. When in fact, now the plan is to simply use concrete for a good deal of that waste. And I'm literally putting concrete or what they call grout in waste tanks. They want to start with 16 waste tanks that have been somewhat emptied, but can still contain about 70,000 gallons of nuclear waste, high-level nuclear waste with 500,000 curies. And they're going to call that empty, put concrete in there which uh, obviously we're opposing. We're not comfortable with that. We think they need to remove more of that waste before they close the tank or, or put concrete in there. That's just ridiculous that they would even consider doing that. But that is just the first step. The real step is to declare many, many tanks still full of waste as low-activity waste. So they, they're going to play the game of renaming the waste. So that it's no longer high-level waste, it's low-level waste by waving a magic wand. And, you know, what that ends up with is it's still really dangerous. It's still dangerous for long levels of time, long periods of time, but it's going to be secured in concrete. That makes Hanford a a high-level waste nuclear repository in all but name. Uh, And this is a terrible place to have Hanford be a nuclear waste repository for that kind of waste. It's a huge river flowing past. The second most powerful river in the world is the Columbia River. It's only a few miles away from these tank farms. There are big dams on the Columbia River. An earthquake could cause a dam failure. The dams are already old. So a big flood would uh, obviously serve to mobilize this waste. There's volcanoes nearby. 
There's earthquakes that could crack the tanks. It's just a terrible idea, right? So nobody really thinks this is a great idea except the Department of Energy itself. And they're just looking at it from a monetary perspective. So they're corrupting the science, corrupting the political processes to get what they want. So this was the circumstance as of, say, the first of the year. Then COVID-19 starts to hit. What changes has that made in how Hanford is operating and what it is doing? COVID hit. The Trump administration had just released a budget for the Hanford cleanup. And that budget cut $416 million from the cleanup. That's a sizable chunk of the cleanup budget. And it halted the stabilization and cleanup efforts at some highly sensitive radioactive cleanups that were in process at Hanford. This includes defunding to zero the budget for the cleanup of what's called the Waste Encapsulation Storage Facility, which contained about 70 million curies of cesium-137 and strontium-90. This waste, there are little capsules. There's about 2,000 of these capsules stored in Olympic-sized swimming pools. They were put in there in 1970, and it's very, very high radiation level. It's not only radioactively hot, it's thermally hot. But the radiation has degraded the concrete in these pools. And numerous studies and and individuals have been raising the alarm that we can't count on the cesium-137 and strontium-90 storage facility to operate as planned, right? So this is a crisis. It's been called the number one safety issue in the complex. And if you want to put this in perspective, these pools are underneath a metal building, right? A quasi-hut, really. And there's no containment. And yet, it's one of the biggest inventories of cesium and strontium-90 in the United States, sitting in decrepit facilities that basically have no, uh, we have no assurance that they're going to stand up. If you lost the cooling water, because you have to refrigerate the water, it would only take a few hours for that to turn into a national catastrophe. Are we talking about an explosion, like a bomb explosion? Yeah. I mean, this stuff would literally catch on fire underwater in a process called hydrolysis, and it releases hydrogen gas. And it gets to a point where if the cooling water were to end and it start to evaporate the water in the pool it would reach a point where just a few feet even above the level above the strontium-90 cesium capsules, where it would just start to boil and release so much hydrogen that you're looking at the real possibility of, of a fire. And you'll, you're not going to get within miles of that facility at that point. It'll be way too radioactive. And there's, again, no containment. So just the release of a few percent of this this amount of cesium and strontium-90 into the atmosphere would be game over for Hanford cleanup, probably blanket a huge area of outside the facility, affect the nearby Columbia Generating Station, uh, which is the Northwest only operating nuclear plant, affect farmland 
forever, like in Fukushima and Chernobyl. In other words, we're looking at a the potential for a natural disaster on a scale that we have yet to see. You know, I have a story about that. Actually, I, I went out to the site a couple of years ago. A court had ordered Hanford to give me and my team a tour of the tank farms because we were suing the Department of Energy and the contractor over failure to protect workers at the tank farms from inhaling toxic vapors. And in the course of that lawsuit, we were allowed to conduct an inspection out there. So this was not a friendly visit. Like, oh, Tom, let's show you Hanford. It was like security guards and guys in suits. And, you know, it was pretty tense. And we are in the federal building waiting to be escorted out to the site. I'm literally surrounded by guys in suits and security guards. And this scientist who I've known for quite some time kind of pushed his way past everyone and grabbed me by my lapels and said, Tom, Tom, you have got to do something about the WESF facility. It won't last. They've got a cleanup plan, but it's not in time and it's threatening the whole Tri-Cities. It's threatening Spokane. And this has to be a huge priority. And, you know, I'm looking at him, I'm going, uh, you know, dude, you know, look who's around us. You know, they're all goggling at him. It's like, what? They've never seen anything like this. I mean, I've been, you know, people have blown the whistle to me for years about all kinds of things, but never in such a public manner. And he looked around and he goes, what are they going to do? Fire me? I'm retiring in three months. Go ahead. Make my day. Fire me. Um, that was a real wake-up call for me that some of the top scientists out there were willing to just risk their careers to come forward and warn me and the public about this. So we obviously got active on the Hanford Advisory Board and writing letters, et cetera, and researching this. So it was going to get cleaned up. Now Trump is killing that cleanup. So right at the point where COVID was hitting, you already had to deal with the fact that there was a huge lessening of the budget to be able to do the work under the best of circumstances. Now we're going into COVID circumstances. What has that impact been? You know, I told you about WESIF, but there are a number of other facilities that are as sensitive and dangerous. And I won't go into the laundry list of them. You know, I'll just say, you know, there's buildings with roofs that are about to fail. It's known. And they've put off cleanup of that. There are trenches and cribs about to collapse. One of them has more than 100 pounds of plutonium in there, which is like, what? They are planning to fill that with concrete. Um, you know, this, but you just uh, said before that the, the concrete, the radiation degraded the concrete in the pool. So isn't it going to degrade the concrete here as yes, well? Yes, but they're promising. And the EPA is in control of this particular cleanup that this is an interim stabilization effort to stop the collapse of the facility that could release plutonium into the environment or worse, right? So this would stabilize it, and then you could go and remove the concrete and the stuff below it when you had. We're saying, well, why not just do that now? Oh, well, we don't have the money. I mean, it's like, yes, you do. The United States government has the money to go do this. Why don't you go do this? Anyway, so there was actually just a hearing about this last night, and the Department of Energy held this hearing. You couldn't hear much. It was all online, and 
they are just anxious to use concrete wherever they can. So I agree with you. Concrete is not, it is the new answer, but it's not a sufficient answer. But we did have a collapse of a tunnel at the Purex facility in 2017. We covered that on Nuclear Hot Seat. That's right. And they knew it was unstable for decades. Um, They were warned in the most strident of terms by their own engineers saying, you got to do something about this. And they waited and then the tunnel collapsed. And fortunately, it was just one portion of the tunnel. And they, their response to all that was to pump concrete into both, because there were two tunnels, into both of those tunnels. And again, they're promising that at some point, they will go and remove that concrete, use diamond saws, et cetera, et cetera. We'll see if they do, right? Because when are they going to do it? There's not a date certain. There's not a deadline set for when that's going to happen, much less is it clear that there's a budget for it. You know, and we're in times of extreme political instability. It's who knows, right? In 10 years, whether or not there will be a U.S. government or what its capabilities will be, or if it's the whole system has collapsed, it kind of feels like we're looking at system collapse right now. You know, so you you really do have to worry about the long-term consequences of failure to clean up these sites with such dramatic long-term effects on future generations. I remember we're talking about materials that give no warning that they are that they are present in your food or in your air or in the water. They're silent, right? They they don't look like anything, they don't smell like anything. They're unlike anything else we've ever had to deal with in the past. And our bodies have no defenses against it. These are little, this is energy, you know, affecting our bodies and our genes. The description you just gave of radioactivity and what it does to our bodies and how it exists around us is almost identical to a description one could do of COVID-19 in that it's invisible. We have no immunity to it. We can't see it, smell it, touch it, taste it, but it's out there and it's deadly. We'll return to our interview with Tom Carpenter of Hanford Challenge in just a moment. But first, yep, leave it to the nuclear industry to look at COVID-19 as an opportunity to make gigantic strides towards creating another invisible threat to our lives and our futures, exposure to nuclear radioactivity. If one reads between the lines of recent media releases, it seems that the industry has been lavishing its money amid COVID times to step up a big international push for more nuclear reactors, weapons, and support technologies, along with a weakening of regulations related to safety. It's a cluster. And mainstream media is not covering nuclear stories as a matter of course, Their resources are going to COVID and local stories. That is why you need Nuclear Hot Seat. We look at the nuclear aspect of our world every week, and especially now with the COVID-19 impact on worker safety, reactor safety, and the nuclear industry's manipulative trickery during this time of fear and confusion. Nuclear Hot Seat is the only place you can count on every week to continue to report on the ongoing, evolving nuclear truth about the COVID nuclear connection while not dropping the ball on other nuclear stories around the world. But let's get honest here. 
since COVID hit, things have been challenging, and I really need your help. There are monthly, quarterly, and annual fees just for the tools necessary to produce, host, post, and support the show. To keep things going, now more than ever, your help is needed. That's why the time would be right now to support us with a donation. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button to help us with a donation of any size. And to set up a monthly $5 donation, click on the big green Donate button. Please do what you can now and know that however much you can help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now back to this week's interview with Tom Carpenter of Hanford Challenge. You've given us a great picture of what exists anyway at Hanford that makes it so deadly. Now we're in a unique situation that started as of February when the awareness of COVID-19 was there. And I want to know how did that impact and how has that impacted the work at Hanford? Almost all cleanup work has stopped, right? So right now they're on what is called critical mission duty. Um, There's just a small percentage of the workforce is actually going to work. They are there to uh, take the temperature of the tanks, monitor for the presence of explosive gases, conduct the kind of routine maintenance and surveillance that is necessary to assure that something bad doesn't happen. But I want to point out that in January of 2020, the GAO, which is short for Government Accountability Office, which is the investigative agency of Congress. So this GAO does these reports. I'm sure a lot of your listeners have heard of the GAO. Did a report, the Department of Energy's failures already to conduct appropriate monitoring and surveillance of its high-risk facilities, such as uh, the Purex tunnel collapse. So even though they had that tunnel collapse, GAO had noticed that they had never done a root cause analysis of the collapse. They hadn't really questioned what was going on. Uh, the, The DOE gave the contractor a pass and said, oh, yeah, you don't have to do all that work. So they really didn't learn anything from the Purex tunnel collapse. They just moved on past it, they pumped concrete into it, and they were finding that they aren't conducting the minimum of surveillance and oversight and prevention that they needed to for all of these other facilities at the Hanford site. And they picked out like 12 to look at and kind of chapter and verse went through this, anyone can go put in search terms on the internet, Hanford, GAO, in January 2020 is that report is pretty alarming. So then when COVID hit, most employees were sent home. I do want to say that took about, I took about six, eight weeks for that to happen, even though the government was fully aware of how dangerous this virus was and how people should be socially distancing and wearing protective equipment, et cetera. But it, it wasn't until March 19th or 25th or something like that, when workers were actually sent home from the Hanford site. In the meantime, our phones and our email is lighting up 
this is what I wanted to ask you about yeah. because there was a May 4th article in the UK newspaper, The Guardian, yes. that cited you quite extensively. And you spoke of having received phone calls and email from on-site workers regarding the circumstances at Hanford after COVID had hit. What was the kind of information that you were receiving? People were saying that they only spoke of COVID at Hanford in the most general of terms. They didn't really do anything to protect anybody. There was no protective equipment. There was no acknowledgement that people should socially distance from each other. By March 13th, we had canceled our yearly annual event because of concerns over COVID. We, we made that decision in early March, as did everyone else. Hanford just kept bowling along, right? People meet in groups of 50, 60 people in trailers in very close quarters in the morning to do briefings, to get ready for work. Then they go out to the field. Uh, they get monitored by physics technicians. It's all very close quarters. So there's a lot of concern because no one's wearing masks. No one's wearing gloves. There's no testing going on. People were so worried about it that they were putting in stop works, right? Which is any, any employee out there can stop work if they feel like it's not, it's not safe. And there were so many stop works being put on. It's almost like work stopped almost everywhere out there. And then finally uh, people got sent home, but I was getting very passionate, angry and bitter communications from workers say they just don't care about us out there. And people were, in one case, somebody was threatened if they didn't shut up about it. And this is what Hanford does. It, it doesn't respect worker safety and health. It never has, which is why we had to sue them in the past, just to get them to protect workers against inhaling toxic vapors that over 21 major studies had found caused long-term damage to the health and safety of the workforce out there. Hanford knew better. You know, they're almost like the people who run around saying, oh, COVID-19, that's the whole thing's a conspiracy to take away our rights and open up and brandishing guns and running around with de demonstrations. And it's like that crew, it's almost like that's the same people at Hanford, right, who are running the site going, ah, this is, there's nothing to this. And this is what a bunch of crap. And meanwhile, of course, people are dropping right and left. But Hanford, you know, they've acknowledged a couple of cases of COVID. Um, workers have told me that it's more like 50 cases that they know about. So I'm not sure the, uh, the actual acknowledgement is catching up with the number of cases actually happening out there. You know, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission in a teleconference that they held on March 27 announced that they were no longer going to be reporting on the number of cases at any of the sites, be it inside a reactor, especially those reactors that are going through refueling. And obviously that extends to the Hanford site. Now you're saying that while they will admit to two cases, you're saying that from your calls, you suspect the number is much higher than that, 50 or more? 50 or more is what it... Uh that's the number I keep hearing from other employees. Like, so I don't have direct knowledge of that. But obviously, people who work out there, who are in unions and stuff like that, they're all talking. 
So I'd be really curious to find out what the number is. I noticed that Trump was just quoted as saying that he doesn't want to do testing, right? Because it would show the number of actual cases out there, which would be bad for him. He is the president. He controls, you know, the executive branch and all that flows downhill. So I am sure there is a general order out there to not report these cases, not look for them. That's what Hanford has always done, is if it doesn't want to find out the bad news, you don't even look for the bad news, right? You don't send an inspector out. Um, You don't measure, because if you measure it, you find something and you have to report it, right? And if you report it, eventually groups like ours or others will find out what's going on. So it's best just not to even look. We caught about 20 fish at the Hanford site back in 2005 and tested them for radioactive materials and um, found plutonium in like 12 or 13, which is amazing, right? It was small levels, but still. It doesn't take much plutonium to do its damage. So there's no such thing as an inconsequential level. So we uh, contacted the Hanford site and they've got a company, Battelle, that does their science. And they produce the environmental reports on Hanford. And we said, well, so what are you finding for radiation in fish? And they said, well, what kind of radiation? We said plutonium. They said, um, oh, yeah, no, we didn't find anything. So we said, well, can we see your data? They said, then they admitted that they didn't look for plutonium in fish because they didn't expect to find it. And of course, we said, oh, really? What did Hanford make? Plutonium. Right? It made most of the plutonium for the nuclear arsenal for America. It was many, many metric tons of it. And a lot of it ended up in the river because of fuel failures and spills. And it's just, that's how it works, right? But they didn't even look for it. So it's just an example of don't look, you don't find, you don't have to report it, right? And it's the same with COVID and workers are terrified about going back to work, which is probably gonna happen soon. There's gonna be an order in the next week or two for workers to report back to work or lose their jobs. Workers are being told, you're gonna have to bring your own face masks and your own gloves, because we don't have them out here. So it's like, wow. And people with medical conditions, right? There's people that have had cancer, they have respiratory conditions, I mean, the average age of the Hanford workers is in the 50s. Many of them are sick from working at Hanford, right? Or just have general conditions. And so there's a concern that the COVID will spread rapidly through the workforce in the right conditions. And because of the lag time between having it and being asymptomatic, it could be a week before it shows up. By that time, you've managed to expose a lot of people. I guess the the big concern around not acknowledging it, not testing for it, ignoring it, trying to put your head in the sand is that Hanford runs on largely tribal knowledge, right? There are people out there who are seasoned, um, who know what's going on. And yeah, they've got a lot of procedures, but a lot of them conflict Um, And if you follow those procedures, you probably, in some cases, just end up with a worse tragedy uh, than if you didn't intervene, right? And so workers out there, they they know this. Well, if you 
remove the workers that know things, that know that, you know, you don't put water on this, you don't do this for that. You know, there's even t-shirts out there. It says, don't touch that. You don't know where it's been. Well, obviously it should be marked, right? But they've had live electrical, you know, stubs out there with, that were unmarked, right? And so people just say, you know, watch out for that thing. Don't touch it. You can get a shock. This is the history of Hanford. And so that's what worries me is that people who are just know what they're supposed to do suddenly aren't there anymore. There's a, a toxicologist named Tim who did some audits for Battelle at the site. And he told me the story that goes back to the 90s. There was a building at in the 300 area of Hanford that had this large inventory of strontium-90 on one floor. And below it, they had a bunch of sodium, liquid sodium in storage. Well, liquid sodium is dangerous stuff, right? So upon contact with air or water, it can violently react. What Hanford calls an exothermic reaction and the rest of us call an explosion. And it doesn't take much. So to keep the uh, air from contacting the sodium, uh, they had what's called an argon trap. And it's argon is an inert gas and it keeps air from getting in. So it's a safeguard. Unfortunately, you have to recharge the argon gas because it bleeds out of the valve every month. And so he was doing an audit and found that it wasn't written down in a procedure for anyone to change the argon gas. So someone knew to do it, but if that person, you know, got sick or got hit by a bus or quit or whatever, just he's no longer there, then who would know to change out that argon? And we're now facing a situation where the number of people, the older people, are more disproportionately hit by COVID, and they could be incapacitated, they could die. And then we have lost the information pool that that person represented as part of what you called the tribal knowledge there. Right. So it looks like on every possible level, Hanford was a mess and dangerous before COVID hit, and this is now making it worse. As we continue, as Washington State is now starting to relax some of its safety measures and people are going to be forced back to work at Hanford, what do you think, in your estimation, would be the safest route or the best route to be taken? I think Hanford needs to look at its workers as a very precious resource. They need to be very, very closely monitored, given the best protections. Bring them back out to work, but observe all of the social distancing requirements. Give them effective masks and gloves and do a lot of testing. Take temperatures of people coming in. Do the kind of testing that needs to happen to see if someone has COVID and make sure they don't come to work or isolate them and then you know, contact trace that group and make sure that people who are potentially exposed are quarantined to prevent the kind of spread that we see happening in prisons and nursing homes and whatnot, institutions 
where they're not being careful and they don't have that testing. And you know, Hanford could easily be there, but with much greater consequence to our, our health and safety and certainly worker health and safety, wrong set of circumstances were to, were to come together out there. So yeah, I would be very careful if I were the government and I were Hanford and not take this so cavalierly and to make sure that they really are on top of protecting these workers' health and safety so that uh, we don't have a bad situation. And again, in your estimation, how likely is it, do you believe, that that kind of safety culture and materials and practices are going to be put in place at Hanford? How likely is it? Yeah, very unlikely. That's the, the bad news is even before this, it was sketchy, right? Otherwise, you would not have had a direct tunnel collapse. And you just keep waiting for the next piece of bad news, you know, the next shoe to drop. They've been pretty lucky at Hanford over years that they haven't had a major catastrophe. We are not out of the woods with that cleanup. And every day, the facilities get older. Things wear out. Workers that used to know what was going on leave, they retire or whatever, and they're gone. There's a a U-curve that engineers use for new facilities, you know, that there's a lot of accidents up front. Uh, There's a learning curve, and eventually it flattens out as they get to know what, what to do, et cetera. But then over time, machinery wears out, the equipment wears out. People become cavalier. The procedures are ignored, and the accident rates and the problems tend to increase then over time. And that's where we are with Hanford, is even though the the production mission is over, the risks are real, the dangers are real, and this is no time to relax our guard. Tom, that has been thorough, deep, frightening and really a cautionary tale that I hope someone and some ones in positions of power over Hanford will take to heart, will hear, and will operate from because it's the people's safety and beyond that they are responsible for such a greater level of safety being necessary to keep us from what could easily be a catastrophe coming out of Hanford. Right. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, thank you so much for being my guest today on Nuclear Hot Seat. Tom Carpenter, Executive Director of Hanford Challenge. You can find out more about Hanford Challenge by going to their website, hanfordchallenge.org. And of course, we will link to them on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 464. Activists, Activists, shout out, shout out, shout out. Congratulations to Rick Wayman. He is the new president of the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation, taking over from the now-retired David Krieger, with whom he has worked since 2007. Wayman has been with the organization since 2007, when he was named as director of programs. But his passion for world peace traces back farther than that to the campaign for nuclear disarmament in the U.K., Over the past few weeks, the NAPF has updated its mission statement and vision to reflect a new initiative called Peace Literacy, an educational framework that teaches people the skills needed to proactively understand, confront, and heal the root causes of crucial issues. 
As Rick Wayman said, I have to believe that another world is possible. Otherwise, for me, there's no point in being here. We look forward to having Rick Wayman on our show in the near future. And I still have a few places left in my workshop on how to produce your own podcast. It's interesting that the majority of people I have in are connected with the nuclear issue. During these extraordinary times, people need information, encouragement, insight, and perhaps the exact skills you provide. And the most direct way to get your information and perspective out into the world is through a podcast. If you feel a burning desire to share your thoughts, your message, your concerns with the world and be of service, send me an email at info at nuclearhotseat.com and I'll explain all about it. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, May 12, 2020. Here's some things you can do for us. Go to our Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook page, like it, share it, respond to a post, let people know that you're there and that we're here. To get the program by email every week, go to NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down for the yellow opt-in box, just put in your name and an email address. We will send you one email a week with the link to the show and some supplemental information. And if you're in the mood, go to Podbean.com, search for Nuclear Hot Seat, and subscribe to it that way too. We're working to build our numbers on Podbean, which is a new platform for us, and it would be very helpful if you could just go there and do that for us. Now, if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, and especially in these COVID times, Go to NuclearHotSeat.com and know that your help to us is only a big red button away. We will be very grateful for your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2020, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating. Reminding you that the last thing anyone who opposes nuclear wants to be able to say is, I told you so. (laughs) Let's not go there. And that's why this has been your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep. Because truly, we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.